South Africa is in the midst of a profound crisis. How do we as individuals and communities go about preparing for an uncertain future? Well, joining me on the podcast today is my colleague, Dr. Franz Grenier. He is the director of the Center for Risk Analysis and also the outgoing CEO of the Institute of Race Relations. He's also the author of this book from 2020, The Rise or Fall of South Africa. And I thought I'd have him on the podcast just to discuss the final chapter of this book, which is entitled, What You Should Do. And it sets out a detailed plan about how to go about mitigating the risks in South Africa today in order to preserve and protect our livelihoods, our families, and our communities into the future. Franz Krenier, welcome to Solutions with David Ansara. Very good to be here, David. Hello. So, Franz, let's first start off by reflecting on the events of the last month or so. We saw the unprecedented levels of riots and looting in KZN in particular, and also in Gauteng. But this really has been the culmination of many years of contradictory policy, adverse socioeconomic conditions. What is your reading of where South Africa is now in light of what happened a few weeks ago in, in the country? Yeah, look, it had a good decade uh, after the transition to democracy. Uh, life on the whole got better. The politics stabilized. It was really only 10 years. And uh, in the decade to today, it's the wheels are coming off. Uh, the policies of the government are too hostile to attract much by way of investment. And when that doesn't happen, people aren't sinking money into the country, the economy doesn't grow. When the economy doesn't grow, you don't create opportunities for people to improve their lives. And uh, when that happens, the political instability in the country rises. At the same time, the government runs out of the money it needs to run the country. So two things happen. That's where we're now. Politically, you destabilize quite quickly. And at the same time, the ability of the government to run the country and do the things that governments do, that ability begins to dissipate. And that is right where we are at the moment. And... What do you think were some of the immediate triggers of the violence and also what are some of the kind of policy considerations and the, the broader socioeconomic backdrop that we're considering in South Africa? Yeah, that's what you've got to watch. You've got to watch the reason the thing could take off, the protest in Natal and a bit in Gauteng, uh, more than the spark that might have set it off. Now, the government's focused a lot on the spark. It said there was a coup or an insurrection attempt and that's the attempt on the government's part to create a storyline to shield itself from culpability. We see it completely the other way around, that for an eruption of this uh, scale to have occurred, the circumstances within the country needed to be very volatile. And those circumstances are volatile. More than half of young people don't have a job. And the budget deficit, that's the difference between what the government spends and what it earns. It's the same as in your family. If you've got a budget deficit, you spend more than you earn. And the current uh, deficit for the country is of a depth that's only been beaten on three previous occasions. In the 1980s, when apartheid was collapsing, prior to that, the Second World War, and prior to that, the First World War. So, yeah, these are the circumstances. The states lost the ability to enforce order or implement policies or maintain a, uh, a level of social support that people demand, and at the same time, opportunities for people to improve their own lives aren't there because the growth's not there, because there's not investment. And so, yeah, the two things happen, political destabilization and the state loses its ability to do the things that people would commonly think governments do, like maintain law and order or provide a reliable supply of electricity or run good schools or uh, uh, maintain the roads, uh, all of that starts to fall apart. So Franz, given what's transpired, how do we see this process playing out? Um, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the crisis, the president uh, announced that there was this supposed insurrection or coup attempt, uh, but then on the other hand also uh, wanted to introduce this basic income grant that will be obviously financed from the fiscus. 
but that may only serve to paper over some of the, the very deep cracks that exist in South Africa. So looking ahead one year, five years, 10 years to the end of the decade, how do we see South Africa developing over this period uh, given what we have observed over the last three years, because the conventional narrative has been, well, this is the reform agenda of the president, and uh, he's this frustrated reformer, and reform is just around the corner, uh, but never really seems to transpire. So, I mean, are the riots that we've seen just the first manifestation of this uh, kind of deep internal contradictions in the country, uh, or do you think that they or just a flash in the pan? No, no, it's a long established trend. Um, uh, we, we've picked it up for you know, going back 20 years. We track the level and extent of protest action in the country and the proportion of protests that are violent. And over the past decade or so, the number of violent protest actions is up on one count by about 400%. You don't need to worry it's at 400 or 500 or 300. The data is not good enough for that, but it's up and it's way up. It's climbing like a little rocket. And the intensity of protests, that means what proportion of them are violent, has climbed from about 10%, or it actually got down almost to around 5%. And just as the economy was really growing strongly between 2004 and 2007, now we're at a point where 30% of protest actions are violent actions. So this isn't a new phenomena. This isn't a flash in the pan. This is simply the continuation of a well-established trend line. And we knew that, which is why we were telling clients in the run-up to this blow-up, to expect a blow-up of anarchic violence and looting, because you can simply see it in the numbers. It's not difficult to do the analysis. Nothing's going to change here unless the government introduces reforms that allow it to grow the economy quickly, which means there must be confidence to put in a lot of money. People with real money must sink that money into South Africa. They need to make a choice. This is the best place to put our investment dollars because it's great. It's well run. It's safe. There's electricity. For that to happen, the government needs to introduce reforms. But we, what are reforms? Let's deal with that quickly. Reforms mean not a social compact. My bank uh, sent me an email this morning saying uh, the advice is we need a social compact. But that's, that's just a fluffy kind of unicorn cupcake analysis. What we need is this. We need to deregulate the labor market, make it much cheaper to employ people, to make unskilled people employable so that they can earn an income and learn some skills and then raise their incomes. But the government says there's no way we're going to do that because that would see people being exploited. And so labor market policy, including after Mr. Ramaphosa came to power, becomes more restrictive. It's more difficult to employ people. Second thing we need to do is get rid of black economic empowerment and race-based affirmative action policies, because these become a breeding ground for malfeasance, and they serve as a tax on investment. When you come to South Africa, you want to start a business, you're told we'll allow you to do that if you give away so much to, to this group and that group and the next group. And that simply reduces your, your overall uh, competitiveness. But the government is not prepared to countenance criticism of that policy, let alone the idea that it must be reformed. On property rights, central, you've got to tell investors, if you put sink your dollars here into a hard project, you buy something, your investment is safe. But the primary policy pillar of the reform agenda, so-called, out of Ramaphosa has been the policy of expropriation. And it's not just expropriation of land, which would kill investment on its own. It's expropriation of, of the private medical industry and medical insurance funds. That's what national health insurance is. It's the, it's the expropriation of pension funds and savings. 
That's what the government's prescription uh, policy entails, which it's now calling an infrastructure program. So no one's going to sink money in. Unless you introduce those reforms, you're not going to get confidence, you don't get investment, you don't get growth. We've long been skeptical about the reform agenda. We're skeptical about whether Mr. Ramaphosa is a reformer. And, and if you're not, we don't like to sit on the fence, we make calls. It's not a reformist government. It's never going to introduce those reforms. The reason my bank sends me a note about a social compact is it's too scared to say what the types of reforms need to be because it will get flack told it's right-wing, racist, blah, blah, blah. So it writes social compacts. Nothing else it can say. Reform is not going to happen under the present administration. And for that reason, the established trends of weak economic performance and high levels of political instability are going to continue. And they will continue until their consequences trigger a political transition here. The political transition means that the ANC loses power, is removed from government in South Africa, and something else comes to replace it. Now, that something else could be a good thing, could be a worse thing. We'll talk about that as we go on. But that's where we are at the moment. There is no reform agenda. Mr. Ramaphosa is not a reformer. And we do not think that that is going to change. And the strongest evidence of that to date is that in the aftermath of these terrible riots, instead of talking about the necessary reforms to address the reasons for the riots, the government's created a fairy tale about um, an insurrection and a coup. Uh, uh, which which is a lot of nonsense. David. So, France, assuming that we don't have this reform agenda, how does this play out in terms of various election scenarios? What might we see in the future in terms of if the ANC continues to weaken and decline, what might replace it? Okay, ANC is weakening and declining. You see that in the polling. And the enthusiasm at the moment for postponing the local elections in October is a function of the fear of running into those. Because what could happen in October is that the ANC's overall score will be below 50%. And that psychologically will be a very important moment for the country because it will mean that everyone, every commentator, every analyst, every business leader, investor, ordinary person, whatever it is, will be thinking that these guys are done. And that kind of thinking often becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, meaning that the ANC could lose the election of 2024. That is if we continue to hold elections on time when we should hold elections. It's very dangerous to propose uh, scrapping and suspending an election. It's an excuse, the COVID pandemic, we queue for social grants, the shops and restaurants are open, the kids have been sent back to school, and, and the government's starting to say it would be too dangerous to hold an election. Uh, that, that, that's, you can see what's going on here. It's dangerous. If elections aren't interfered with and uh, the opposition starved of funds, which this new funding uh, legislation is having the effect of doing, what's simply going to happen is the ANC is going to lose the national election, perhaps in 2024. Uh, that was the first, we made that call in 2014. We said it would be 2024. If it's not, then there's no way they're still in power at the end of the decade. They go in 2029. What happens after the ANC's defeat is, is practical. Uh, think about it. The, the ANC's now got 40-something percent of the vote. It could bring back the EFF as its partner and say, well, let's govern together, and the EFF would then eat the ANC for breakfast, spit out its leaders, and take over completely. If we then still remain and keep by a massive effort of activists uh, civil rights activists, the basic trappings of democracy, the economic consequences of the EFF in government will be so devastating that the collective ANC-EFF will lose the next election. 
So you remove them both, uh, two birds with one stone. Alternatively, the ANC tries to make a deal with one of the smaller parties or two or three of them. It's only going to be short a few percentage points. It says, well, let's build a, a coalition together. Those coalitions will break up and fall apart. Third option is all the opposition parties get together and say, well, let's freeze the ANC out of government. That's also going to be a shambles if you think of how the DA's attempts at coalition with the EFF played out in, in Johannesburg. So after the ANC has gone below 50, you should anticipate a, a, a five-year period or so of, of, of a shambles. But, but, but it's already, I mean, under the ANC, government is a shambles. Just look at the, 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 the economic recovery strategy is based on an expropriation plan. The, 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 the blow up in Natal saw the defense minister say there wasn't a coup. The president said there was. The police ministers, uh, 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 the, the intelligence minister said he warned the police minister who said he never received the warning. I mean, there's a keystone. Uh, 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 cops at, at work here. It's already a shambles. We'll stay a shambles in coalition. What then needs to happen or will happen is one of two things. Either someone puts a vast amount of backing behind a new political alternative for the country. It must be centre-right, fairly conservative, because that resonates with public opinion. It kind of needs to reflect what the gear policy of the ANC was in its first decade in government. So policy was mainly pragmatic, sought to draw investment, to grow the economy. There were, of course, huge internal contradictions, and all of that we're aware of. If you get such a new party, it could become dominant in a coalition, and it could then hook up with the Democratic Alliance, which since its leadership transition of, uh, of a little while ago is in much better shape ideologically to offer an alternative to the ANC. And perhaps that new political alternative is born out of the old kind of Mbeki era of the ANC. And if you say they weren't that conservative, uh, I'll say to you they recorded a budget surplus. That is about the most conservative thing any government can do. And this new coalition kind of DA plus these sort of new kind of, you know what, what I'd describe them as, um, they could govern the country quite successfully, uh, get a bit of foreign bailout financing late into this decade, into the 2030s, rebuild institutions in South Africa could become a success. If that does not happen, and we're left in the grip of either a collapsing ANC clinging to power via cheating its way to victories, or a shambolic coalition made up of everyone all fighting with each other. What happens then is that the authority of the state, the ability to govern, will recede. Now, the image I want you to have is of the country, and it, and, and it starts with, with the government exerting its influence all over the country, and as this coalition becomes more of a shambles and things fall apart and we're cheating in elections and we've run out of money and trying to expropriate everything in sight, the authority of the state begins to recede until ultimately there is still a government, but it sits in Pretoria in the union buildings and it governs over the buildings and the gardens. And outside of the fence, it has no effective authority, just like was the case in Natal 10 days ago. Those vacuums will be filled. The, the uh, nature abhors it and politics abhors a vacuum. Question is, what fills these vacuums as the state retreats? You saw the answer in the Natal protests. The most powerful local actors take upon themselves what were once the functions of the state. So the taxi industry, that's very powerful. It's very well organized, very efficient business model. Uh, doesn't pay much in tax, which shows you how well organized and efficient it is. And it transports millions of people around the country cost effectively every day. I mean, this is, this is capitalism at its absolute greatest. And the taxi industry started supplying security services to communities. In Umschlanga, the residents uh, peered 
and set up roadblocks to maintain uh, uh, order. Uh, the owners of businesses got their communities together and they surrounded their businesses with militia who, who maintained uh, order. This is what happens as the state's authority recedes. And when it recedes permanently, these new groups become the permanent new authorities. They do what the state used to do. And they'll do it on a small scale. So it will be like a honeycomb of, of I think of the country was one big hole. It becomes this honeycomb of what we call enclaves. And enclaves are communities where ordinary people have stepped into the gap left by the retreating and they are now looking after their own security. They're also looking after their own infrastructure. So they're fixing the waterworks and they're filling the potholes. They're probably looking after their own schools in as far as they can to ensure that their kids have a decent education and so on and so forth. And what you end up with is a federal dispensation, not run by any government, but run by communities that have become independent and have become quite robust. And should it happen that the ANC loses an election and refuses to go or cheats to cling to power, or that it goes but is replaced purely by a shambolic coalition, this enclave future that we describe, I am pretty certain, will become a dominant feature of the communities that many South Africans live in, uh, David. So, Franz, what we're really talking about is a post-ANC future, but there's a long way to go between now and that eventuality. So we've had a couple of very interesting recent interviews on the podcast. So the one was uh, with Gideon Joubert talking exactly about what you just referred to, communities taking their own security and protection into their own hands and, and building from the bottom up community safety structures. Then we also had before that Pete LaRue talking about how businesses need to start to form alternative institutions that are separate from state institutions, essentially also self-organizing and protecting their assets, their capital, and their investments in the country. So I'd like to turn the conversation towards your book again. And the last chapter is really what you should do and talk about starting to develop this idea of a plan B, because it seems that plan A is not working out very well, plan A being the existing uh, democratic dispensation under a unitary state. So what does that plan B actually look like? How do we start as individuals to start to formulate a strategy around how to protect ourselves, our assets, our businesses, our incomes, uh, and our families as well? I used to write a column for a port newspaper and went on for years and years and was great because you had the freedom under reports editor to write what you wanted to write. It wasn't the same political constraints that applied to the rest of the mainstream media. And I think about eight years ago, David, nine years ago, we wrote a column that said it's time to make plan B. And we wrote the column to say, imagine a world where, you know, law and order collapses, the currency's going, the state's ability to enforce order is not there. Um, what would happen to you? And we said, we think this might be where it's, where it's headed. And uh, you should uh, consider doing the following. And I'll, I'm going to build this out for you now. We said, you know, make sure your kids are in the best possible school because their education is the one thing the state won't be able to expropriate. If, if you're invested entirely in fixed assets in South Africa, be cautious because expropriation is probably coming. If, if all your assets are denominated in the RAND, watch out for what happens if the government one day starts printing money, which is now becoming an increasingly uh, uh, plausible result once it's exhausted pension funds. And we, we gave that kind of advice. And the column did really well, um, got read a lot and, and got attacked a lot. And it was the usual crap, you know, uh, it's pessimistic. And I've always thought in our work, terms like optimism and pessimism don't apply. 
It's either you get the analysis right and you make a plan to navigate around the icebergs and take advantage of the opportunities, or you get the analysis wrong and when you hit the first iceberg, you sink. And that's all there is to it. People said it couldn't happen and it's crazy and it's too far-fetched. We were talking about the RAND going to 20 to the dollar in the column. We thought that would be a hell of a thing. The RAND got to 20 to the dollar. And, and we, we hit that level fairly recently. We've come back, of course, on the global recovery, but we're going to go back there again and, and way beyond. If I wrote the column today, I'd talk about... No, and I'll get the same reaction. I'll talk about 100 to the dollar. Uh, and then way off on its, on its own. And, and the reaction will be the same as saying 20 uh, those years ago. And um, the theme got such a response that we stuck with the theme really forever. And um, when we last year wrote the third of our books on South Africa's future, my publisher at Tafelberg, Marina Lamprecht, said, you got to tell people what to do. And and the advice is not for corporate titans. They can all commission us to come and build country strategies for them. The advice was directed more at, at people, ordinary people, ordinary families, small business owners. You know, what, what should you do? The realistic advice, because all these guys get, David, is, is this crap my bank sends me about that we should build a social compact. Now, that doesn't get you out of the starting blocks. So the thinking has evolved over the years. In the book, we said, make it simple. Divide your life into four boxes and think of yourself in four boxes. The first box is, is, is what money you have, if you have any. And some people, most people have a little bit of money. What, what, what are you doing with that? And what are the risks? The second box we said we want you to think about is what you do. Your, your career and your business. Uh, where do you do it? How do you do it? And uh, can you do something else? And, you know, we, the risk we sort of flagged, we'll go into the detail now, is, you know, if, if you worked only, if you had a business that contracted only to the state, we'd say that you've got a problem. The, if, if your business is entirely invested in fixed assets, yeah, we'd say you, you, you're running a risk. Third thing we asked you to think about is, is where in the world can you be? Are you stuck to one place or can you move? And that might mean moving uh, from, from Gauteng as Johannesburg crumbles into the Cape that might hold up better. It could be moving to another part of the world. Do you have those choices? And the fourth box we asked you to think about is your children because you, your children matter to you and that they have a future is often very much more important than whether you have a future as, as a person. And are you preparing your children to be globally competitive in the event that South Africa is not, it mustn't be their only option? And we understand completely that it's tough to make, create, to cover all those boxes for any family. But the advice is create as many choices in each box as you possibly can. Because the more choices you have, the more robust you're going to be. If you have no choices in any of those boxes, you're stuck in the north of Johannesburg. You contract to a government department or agency. You can never leave or go anywhere else. All the money pension you have is, in, is here and in, in the state, in, 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 the, in the RAND, in, in, in the country. And your, your kids only option is to follow in your footsteps. That individual's running a very high degree of risk, that if South Africa goes wrong, their life experience is going to be very harsh. If you become something else, let's say you, you, you are able to save a bit of money and, and, and go for some diversification. We don't give financial advice or investment advice, none, ever. We give strategic insights. Go talk to your advisor and they'll, they'll, they'll give you some ideas. You know, make sure your kids are as well-educated as they could ever be so that that's a good investment for your South African rands, so that they do have the option 
to be competitive in the rest of the world. If they get the chance to travel after school, give them the opportunity. If they can go and work overseas, gain some experience, they can come back. Your business, try not to be dependent on large corporates and government work or overly dependent on fixed infrastructure in the country. The ideal is a small, is a business that can work for clients here and around the world and, and a, a broad spread so that if a large corporation you know, comes to you and says, well, your BE figure is not up to standard, we're booting you. But that's, that's not the end of you. Or the government says we've run out of money now or says you must pay a large bribe. Uh, and and you don't you you shouldn't do that. Then then you're then you're free. And and that where in the world can you be? Do you have to be in one location? Can you start making a, a plan to change location and get yourself into a community that understands that as the state retreats, you in that community better be prepared and willing to take on what were its functions if you are to become a robust community. So that's what the advice later became. And I, we, we still now and again mention it in public here and there. You don't get the criticism we used to get for being crazy or way out or so on. And I think anyone who ended up queuing in Durban for eight hours to get into a supermarket to buy a loaf of bread would have been able to spend that eight hours productively pondering the merits of our 2000 and whatever, 13, whatever it was, advice, David. So, Franz, um, I think that's very good advice. Diversification is, I think, intuitively a, a good idea. You don't have to be a financial expert uh, to understand the strengths of that argument. But speaking of finances, I mean, not everybody in South Africa has the means to say, offshore their investments or immigrate. Uh, so what about the people who maybe are a bit more on the margins in terms of their income levels? How do they start to go about preparing for this volatile future, assuming that they're going to be based here in South Africa? Well, most people are on the margins. So, I mean, the advice is written for, for people. If you're not on the margins, you, you've already made your plan. Believe me, I've spoken at enough wealth management seminars to know that for all the 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 the, the written advice of that the country needs a, a social compact, the clients have long ago been told, run away, run away. Take your money and run as far away as you can from Cyril Ramaphosa because he's not gonna do it. But no one would be, no one would admit that. So the advice is written for people on the margins. And remember what it is, is create as many choices as you possibly can in any of those quadrants. So on, on in terms of, of, of your kids' education, has your community actually taken over the local school governing body in order to try and run that school as well as it can? Have you lent on local businesses in order to provide the support for that school to maintain the infrastructure? Do you actually get out into the streets and, and fill your potholes? Uh, do you patrol your community at, at night to keep uh, criminal uh, gangs away or, or, or whatever the, the dangers are? And, and you know, saving, I mean, it's not, we don't give financial advice. Go talk to your advisor. But, but saving, if you start early in your life, the I mean, compound interest is, is a wonder of the world. And uh, even small amounts put away over the very long term can leave the people who saved if they adjust their lifestyles to one of saving in, in, in a, I think, much better position than many people realize because, because this, it looks so insignificant initially. If you, if you start, you know, your first job, you've got to start putting away a little bit of money. Uh, uh, and and even if that means making, but that's up to the individual. If that means making lifestyle choices, so yeah, to 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 the ordinary kind of individual living in the country today, take charge of your own community, even if that means going to see your neighbour for a drink this evening. Say to him, listen here, the stuff's falling apart. We need to make a plan here that we're going to be robust. You, that that's the first very positive step. 
make sure your kids are have their eyes wide open about the reality of living in a volatile emerging market and that they start looking well in advance at opportunities, uh, not just within the country, but around the world, and that they get as well educated as they possibly can. And that doesn't mean sending them to, to an Ivy League school. I think the Ivy League schools, like the Ivy League universities in America, are disappointing and, and aren't going to be what they used to be. Make sure that the, the, the kid has the work experience, the life experience, the volunteer experience, the reading and understanding to become really competitive. And there are a vast range of global opportunities available if you are creative in how you position yourself for those opportunities. In terms of where in the world you want to live, you know, you, you've got to make your own decisions. We're not going to tell you where to go and live. I mean, that's the, the entire point of this plan B. You see what plan B is, David, it's, it's, it's not like you must now get up and go over there. It's a mindset. It's a mindset that says, no one's coming to save your community. There's no great reformer on the way, not for the next decade. Maybe after that, but, you know, maybe not. In case that advice is correct, and I think it is correct, there's no one coming the next decade. Are we just going to sit there and get crushed by this, or are we going to stand up and do something about it? It's a, it, it's a mindset uh, uh, more than a practical plan. So if you're stuck in... In, in, in Johannesburg, which is crumbling relative to Cape Town, which looks pretty good. You know, think for yourself. I mean, the, the, it, it's the ability, you don't need analysts to hold your hand and take you through this. You just need to open your eyes, have a look around, think for yourself. The, 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 the mainstream economists are telling you there's an economic recovery on the way. And the government's primary policy is expropriation without compensation. If you, if you can't see what's going on here, then, then you don't have a chance. So I think our role really is to, to, to just nudge in that direction time and again. But you've got to do your own thinking. No one's going to do it for you. You must be skeptical of analysts. Be skeptical of us. We welcome it. We don't mind at all. You can say this is the most nonsense you've ever heard. You don't need to do any of it. That that's up to you. But um, uh, the 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 Plan B advice is not as practical as to say, well, now you must do this and you must go over that. You must get your mindset right. It's falling apart. The wheels are coming off, and no one is coming to save you. And what do you want to do about that? And uh, there is a great deal you can do. And it's such an empowering thing. I mean, I get calls now and again from people who read this stuff from us and started doing it. We, and, and they say, you know, when you go out, you get your neighbors together, you fill the first pothole. It's such an empowering thing to do because you're no longer sitting back watching the government sink the country. You've actually taken the first practical step towards turning it around. And that step required ahead of it the acceptance. But no one else is going to fill your potholes for you. No one's going to protect you from robbery gangs in the middle of the night. Uh, uh, and no one's going to make life easy for your, for your kids. Uh, the government is, is going to wreck your school if your school governing body isn't on the ball and 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 starting to take charge of what's of what's happening there, and uh, yeah, these these um, you know the idea that 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 the South African economy is about to take off and boom. You know, I don't think that's the policies of the government make that that possible at all. So get the mindset right, and and uh, I can see immediately. You know, I can give a talk like this. I've done many of them around the country. And I can see immediately who's going to make it and who's not. People who say that's right and we've got to go and do it. And they know it's hard and they know it's unfair and they know they're still going to pay tax and they're still going to pay for their own pothole. They're going to do really well. And the audiences that say to you, but it's not nice and it's unfair and the government's going to still take my tax and I don't, we're not powerful enough to do this. It's only for the rich. 
you, you know immediately there these 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 uh, uh, this community is not going to do well in the future South Africa. And I saw in the protests um, of Natal that there were maybe it will be written up later. There were communities in Natal that got absolutely devastated. You know, the business district burnt. And there were other communities in Natal that didn't get burnt. The difference is this thing I've just told you. It's an attitude of people to say they're not going to do it. The communities that got burnt were still griping about whether someone, whether the police might come and rescue them. The ones that didn't get burned realized that there's, there's no one anymore. We're not that kind of country now. You've got to do it for yourself. So, France, isn't one of the risks of this scenario that the country essentially balkanizes and given our past of racial tensions and ethnic conflicts, that this kind of balkanization ends up exacerbating some of the, the tensions between communities in South Africa? I mean, one of the benefits of the current liberal democratic framework is that it has a, a set of bill of rights that kind of protects individual rights. Do you think that individual rights might uh, be threatened by this uh, potential future that we've, that we've discussed today? Look, if we were a thriving democracy with low unemployment and no, and a reformist government and, and, and no uh, 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 mass violence and looting and people queuing for eight hours at a supermarket, I mean, our, our advice wouldn't be, well, let's dispense with all of that and become this. I mean, that would be fantastic. And in the longer run, that's what we work towards. But if you do want to work towards that again into the 2030s, you better survive the next decade. Because if you get crushed in the next decade and you've got nothing and you've got to exit completely, that's it. You've got no more interest or tie to the country and you've got no ability to shape its future success. So our advice isn't, isn't to abandon the, the, the ideal that we might one day become a successful democracy, although by that stage a more federal one, just the hard reality of where we are at the moment. Now, the politicians will try and turn communities against each other. There are already in the tell politicians who are trying to make this violence uh, black versus Indian in the hope that they could accrue some advantage from that. The South African government in Pretoria does this all the time. Maletzi and Becky, writing a, a week or so ago for Alec Hogg on the website Biz News, talking to Alec rather, said a very good thing. Maletzi said that Ramaphosa's uh, talk up of the insurrection was an attempt to exploit white prejudice by creating this bogeyman, I think Maletzi's term was, of bloodthirsty Zulu savages, and, and, and to scare people into that. If you buy into all this racial nationalist stuff and cannot see that it is an attempt to divide South Africans so that they can't stand together against the greater problem of a corrupt and failing state, well, then you, you're again like that community that says, well, there's nothing we can do. Your plan is too difficult. It's too hard. And then I'm fairly certain I know what's going to happen to that community next. Again, look for yourself at the world. Is that what you see when you look around? Because I saw black communities and white communities form militia to protect infrastructure. I saw farming communities, khaki-clad sort of bearded types, working closely with taxi authorities in order to do the job that the defense force and the police had failed in doing. Our, our lived experience, to use that term, of, of the country is not one of seething racial hatred amongst ordinary people. It's one of seething racial hatred and incitement amongst elites, politicians, and often senior business people. They play this racial nationalist game. And that's not just our lived experience. We've done polling over a very long time. And what the polls show is that eight out of 10 people actually respect each other across every line of race and history and class and want to work together to make the country a success. And I think in the Natal blow up, 
you saw far more of that, communities coming together, than you saw of the bogeyman of South Africa's race war. And part of you becoming robust as a community to withstand the next decade, and Natal now is a teaser of what's to come, is, is that example. Are you as a community actually going to fall for this stuff? that black and white South Africans have fundamentally different values and views and beliefs, and the one lot wants to chase the other into the sea? Or are you going to see that that's a story being sold to you by the same media and the same political and the same business class that's been telling you there's a new dawn and a long game and that expropriation without compensation will bring peace and social justice to the country? If you, 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 there is a responsibility upon the individual to think and not just to go along with these narratives. And the most robust of the enclaves are going to be those that don't fall for this kind of political incitement and instead take active efforts to eliminate it within their communities and work together across every line of race and history and class and ideology and politics to make themselves robust in the face of a corrupt and failing state. France, I totally agree. I think making yourself and your community robust is your patriotic duty. That is how you will be able to secure the future for yourself and for your family. So, and I, and I mean, my ancestry on my father's side is Lebanese. And if you look at the, the Lebanese community, uh, the diaspora throughout Africa, throughout the Gulf states, they've taken it upon themselves uh, to seek out opportunity. They're still very much rooted in the Lebanon, uh, but they have a global mindset. You know, if you think of the Cuban uh, community in Florida, for example, they've fled uh, tyranny and communism in, in Cuba, but they still are working towards the betterment and the future of, of their country and are creating prosperity along the way in the United States. So I think there are a lot of examples of, even under conditions of extreme adversity, like what we saw in Lebanon and in Cuba, you can still make a success out of it and you can still uh, create a better future. So, so France, uh, just on a personal note, you're going to be leaving the Institute at the end of the year, Institute of Race Relations, what are what is your reflections just looking back on your time your years uh, at the institute and the work that you've been doing and how uh, your work has has been has impacted south africa what what are your what are your reflections on on your track record if you will you make me think on my feet now there hasn't really been time to reflect but um i, I think there are a few things one is it's not difficult to know what's going to happen next. We have wonderful information, excellent data, well-researched trends. There's no excuse to say this, this came as a surprise. And none at all. That's the first thing I think that, that I sort of learned is, is you, can, you can make your knowledge as, of the future as good as your knowledge of the present and the past which is a famous quote of scenario planning, but that's the objective. I think you can do that. And uh, you say, well, did you guys know there'd be a blow up of, um, of losing and violence? The answer is, yeah, we did. And we told people that. We told them seven times over the past 18 months of it was coming. That's, that's one. You can know what's happening. Secondly, if you know what's happening and you can think a bit for yourself, there's not much to worry about. You can navigate the icebergs really well, and you can take advantage of the huge opportunities that South Africa continues to offer. People have often thought our analyses are pessimistic. We distressed that earlier. They weren't pessimistic, they were simply accurate. But there's an opportunity in that, because if the sentiment in a society becomes that, you know, it's not going well, you're not gonna see a vast amount of interest or uptake or so on of opportunity. And that means a lot of kind of nuggets of opportunity will be left lying on the surface where you can pick them up if you're entrepreneurial of mindset and do really well. 
but only if you do so inside a community that's robust enough to withstand the the consequences of South Africa's now now failing state. So I think the two things then, David, is get your analysis right and understand what's going to happen next. That's not difficult. And once you've done that, you don't actually have that much to worry about. I mean, you can feel sad that, that the society is not living up to its great potential, but there's really no reason why anyone should be flattened by this stuff if they have, have the ability to see it coming and to take uh, uh, appropriate uh, uh, actions to deal with the consequences. And I've said that to many of the companies we've worked with. You know, if, if, as long as you know what's coming and you've got a dynamic board, you've got no problem. You'll do really well here even uh, uh, in the long run. The people that are going to fail here and get wiped out and suffer the consequences are people who never got their analysis right. Every Monday morning came as a huge surprise because it didn't, <laughs> it was an insurrection, not a new dawn. Now, you know, you, you get a hundred percent wrong there. And and they had no plan to deal with the consequences. They didn't even know what the consequences would be. So they couldn't have a plan. So I'm not that pessimistic about South Africa in the longer term. If you're a community that does those two things, get your analysis right and make a plan. If you fail on your analysis and you don't make a plan, it, it's going to be rough. It's going to be it's going to be really rough, and you you you're going to lose uh, a lot of what's important to you as a consequence. Once we're through this decade of this roughness that's coming, hopefully it's just a decade. Perhaps it's twenty years. There's enough that we've read into South African public opinion to be completely certain that eight out of 10 South Africans are moderate and pragmatic and like each other and want to work together to make the country a success. And I think the experience of what's coming now and the collapse of the state and later the defeat of the ANC is going to bring that to the fore and that it is perfectly realistic. And listen, this comes from, from us. And we, we don't have a reputation as the good news guys. And if we thought it's all going to hell, we'd say it's all going to hell. But I don't think it is. I think through past this decade, when, when we shed ourselves of these destructive racial nationalist politicians, there is this collective experience of coming together. That will resonate with what is and remains mainstream public opinion and make it perfectly possible that into the 2030s, circumstances could again align to see South Africa resume the trajectory it was on for a time after 94 to become one of the world's most successful and later prosperous emerging markets. So that, that remains a perfectly plausible long-term result for people who now position themselves robustly enough. Listen, I've been telling people to do this 10 years ago already. So now it's late in the day, so haul ass. And uh, if you do that, uh, I don't think you need to be too pessimistic about the long-term prospects for yourself, your community, your family, your place in the world, or even the country's long-term uh, uh, options, David. Franz Crenier, thank you very much for joining me on Solutions with David Ansara. If you enjoyed this conversation, you might want to check out the five-part series which Franz Crenier authored on the Daily Friend website, that's linked in the description below. This article or series of articles details the causes and consequences of the riots in July and also explains what you should do. That fifth part in the series formed the basis for this conversation today, so do check that out. My name is David Ansara. Until next week, take care.